0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Mark Fraley podcast. This is our 88th edition. Today is Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. It's going to be a sunny and hot day here in Nashville, and all of our gardening friends will surely agree that we badly need some rainfall. Over the course of the past five years of recording these podcasts, I've interviewed several people who are naturalists by profession, Each of these has been associated with some park, natural area, or forest. But now let us be aware that there is a whole community of people out there who naturalists by avocation, citizen scientists and educators. Yesterday, I sat down with writer-naturalist Joanne Brachetto, who uses her own neighborhood as her base of observations about the natural environment. Her blog can be found at sidewalknature.com and on Facebook and Instagram. We've had a fun time talking about the natural things which can be found in our urban settings, the front yards and street sides, the problems of manicured lawns and pest control, what homeowners can do to be better stewards of the land, and the benefits of the much-maligned hackberry tree. And so I hope you will enjoy this interview with Joanne Bricchetto. And we will get started right after this brief message.
1: Hi, this is Heather Lose, Editor-in-Chief of the Tennessee Conservationist Magazine. Every year we publish six beautiful issues packed full of timely and informative stories about Tennessee culture, people, and places. You can stay informed about your world and all the great things happening in your Tennessee state parks. It's easy to subscribe. Just go to our website at tnconservationist.org. Thank you.
0: Joe Burketto, welcome to the Mark Fraley Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm thrilled that, that we're finally able to work out that we could get together. I've been, I've been witnessing what you post on social media for a year or two, I suppose. Yeah. And um, have admired it. And finally, I'm glad to finally actually get a chance to meet you. I'm delighted. It was fun to, to, uh, to walk around in our yard just a little bit before we got started. And we'll talk about that experience here in just a second. Oh, good. You have, just to share with the audience, several... Uh, Places where you are involved with uh, social media postings about nature and naturalist sorts of things. Tell, tell the audience what those are, if you would.
1: I run a blog called SidewalkNature.com, and it's about everyday wonders in everyday habitat loss. I want to focus on the wonders, but also always keep it within that frame of we're losing habitat every day, even in our own neighborhood. Um, And that's a place for short essays, um, stuff that I found. But honestly, I'm more active on Instagram right now. Okay. And that's where I post today's Sidewalk Nature. I take several walks every day, in the morning, in the evening, in the middle, I walk the dog. So I'm always coming across something amazing on the sidewalk that I want to share. But then sometimes it'll be today's backyard nature, or today's front yard nature, which is different, or today's driveway nature, because oh my gosh, the stuff that can just come up in the crack in a driveway. So basically, it's all nearby nature. It's all nature that's already here.
0: Okay. Well. And I, I encourage the audience to check those those places out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I think that you. you have. I
1: can't do Twitter. Right. Twitter just stumps me. I, I
0: see it every now and then that you do to do a I try. post. Yeah. Anyway, it's well worthwhile because um, you might make make some sort of observation three or four times a month on each of those. Sometimes more frequently. Um, I always yeah. learn something when I when I tune those in.
1: Oh, that's what I'd love to hear. Right.
0: So, let's learn a little bit about you as we get started. You know, one of the things that, you know, we, in, we interview individuals who are involved in conservation and natural resources and, you know, allied topics such as that. Right. And I'm always curious about what got you interested in that?
1: Well, I grew up in South Knoxville we had a really big yard we were near the lake we didn't have like access but we were near the lake I could see it I could smell it I could hear the birds the street from our house if you looked really carefully you could see the Smoky Mountains which was one of my favorite places to be my dad was a, a Scoutmaster before I was born so he made sure we had a lot of time in the Smokies but the important thing was that I was a latchkey kid with probably an acre of yard. And nobody cared where I was or uh, when I would come home unless it was dinner time. And my mom had an iron triangle with a little iron Mm -hmm. beater and Mm -hmm. would just stand in the yard and beat the heck out of it. And I could hear it all the way up the street where the hickories grew and I would come running home. So the important thing was I had free time, unsupervised time in a fabulous kind of wild yard.
0: And you just got out there and explored?
1: Every day. Okay. Every day.
0: Fantastic. And did you ever get any training in botany or bi- wildlife biology or any of those Oh, topics? gosh, no.
1: I am such an amateur. Um... When I was in elementary school, we we were taken to Tremont in the Smokies. Yeah,
0: beautiful place.
1: And ever since then, I dreamed about going back because as a grown-up, I read that they have these training courses for teachers. Sometimes they're a week long. That was my goal. Never happened. And then here I am, old, and I hear that Owl's Hill Nature Sanctuary is starting a Tennessee naturalist program. And I email. I'm too late, but I get in the next year, which is the second year of existence, and that was the game changer. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: And when was that? What
1: year? That was. That? was I got my certification in 2012. So. Okay. Yeah.
0: So. Ten years ago. Ten years ago. Yeah. And fantastic. now there are
1: eleven chapters across the state, not just that one. Fantastic.
0: Yeah. Now is that is that something that um, just any citizen can sign up to do?
1: Anybody, okay, yeah. And now they've made it easy. You know, they have different days, different times, different configurations of the courses. If you're disabled, they'll figure out how to make it work. It's awesome.
0: Well, you know, the t- the training has has took so to speak. It took. Yeah. Um, as we walked around the yard today, um, and 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 from your posts, I know that you you know you're familiar with the Latin nomenclature of in botany and. Um, you're, you're really into the details of those things.
1: I am. Okay. I want to know everything about my plant and animal neighbors.
0: Fantastic. You are also involved in the, the Native Plant Society here in Tennessee. Right. Tell us about your involvement in that.
1: Well, gosh, it was, about, it was about 10 years ago then, too. I noticed they didn't have a Facebook presence. So I said, you guys need a Facebook page. They said, yes, make one. So I did. That's really how I'm in there. I gotcha. help do their publicity stuff, and I go on as many field trips as I can.
0: Right. Well, and that's how you and I first got in touch with one another. Um, I was interested in interviewing someone from the Native Plant Society, yeah. and you assisted in arranging that interview
1: with- With Bart Jones. With Bart Jones. From West Tennessee. That's right, yeah.
0: and it was a lot of fun, two or three months ago. Yeah. Yeah, lots of fun. All right, so, Let's talk a little bit more about this nature at home topic Okay. and what, what are you trying to encourage people to do?
1: Oh, what a good question. I'm trying to encourage people to find the nature around them, to know that nature is where we are and we don't have to go out to find it. We, there's nothing wrong with going out. I used to always go, we would go to Warner, we would go to the Cedar Glades. We have so many amazing Cedar Glades, but nature is everywhere. And if we only think it happens out there in these already protected places, in the Metro parks, in the the state parks, in the uh, Division of Natural Areas, all these places that are already protected, if that's where nature is, then why do we have to protect anything else? So if they can see the nature around them and wonder at it and love it, then they can treat it better.
0: That's okay. Super. But you have to first be aware.
1: You have to first be aware. Right.
0: Do you think that that the ordinary citizen just really lacks awareness about the natural world?
1: Oh, my gosh, yes. So there's plant blindness, which is a thing. I mean, we just see green and we don't see individual plants have no interest in meeting them, knowing the difference between this or that. But there's also all this fear with anything, with, okay, the word wildlife, that's a scary word to so many people. The word bee, oh my gosh, it elicits such responses and it's not the kind I want. So you have all that fear to deal with. People think that all insects are pests. I mean, and if you say you are interested in an insect, say there's a spider or something that you're interested in, you're just curious, you look it up, and the internet will tell you all these ways to kill it. Even like entomology sites at universities, you scroll down and, oh, there it is, how to control. Control means kill. So it's just, there's just so much fear, right. and we've got to get past it.
0: You know, the other the, the thing that, that I notice about what you post is that you try to relate how things are interwoven,
1: Oh good, I'm so glad you noticed that.
0: Well, for example, you know, there are certain plants that are host plants for certain kinds of other uh, bugs and etc. Right. Um,
1: Right. Say more about that. Okay, host plant, host plant, okay, it's a terrible phrase, it means nothing. Um,
0: Okay, that's, I wouldn't have said that. No, to a
1: beginner, to a total beginner. Okay. Because, you know, I could host a dinner party or, you know, we host things. It doesn't really mean anything. Uh, But... So you have to put in front of it. Okay, what
0: does that actually? Uh, mean? Yeah, right?
1: I can't say larval host plant because who knows what a larva is, and it sounds gross. So I could say <laughs> caterpillar host plant, but still, aren't caterpillars bad? Aren't they pests? So we try to kill them on our on our th- everything that grows in the yard. Caterp- so like, it's a really problematic term when you're using it with civilians. So, but then again, it's the most important term. So we've got to figure this out, and the best way I have found so far is with. A show and tell. Okay, so I was at an event one time. It was in the spring. I had a Asclepias tuberosa, a butterfly milkweed, which is one of our native milkweed species. species. It's got that gorgeous, bright goval's orange bloom to it. Grows in the cedar glades, does very well here. Okay, but it's in a pot and there are people coming by. And I have a little sign that says something like, um, uh, what does host plant mean? And they might start talking to me and tell me things. But the important thing is, is on that milkweed plant is a, I ordered it from Amazon. There's like a plastic life-size monarch adult butterfly, the plastic um, fifth instar caterpillar, and a plastic chrysalis, and then a plastic leaf with the little bitty um, monarch eggs on it. So I've rigged them up on, on florist's wire and they're poking out of this plant so that I can show at a glance
0: exactly what All is the, a host what right, the host plant what right. does
1: the host plant mean and 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 i get so excited so i've known about monarchs and milkweed since first grade i remember checking out a picture book from my school library and yet it wasn't until decades later that i realized what that really means okay even now you look you hear on hikes you see online how monarchs like milkweed monarchs love milkweed. Well, okay. Maybe they do. I don't know. That's not important. The important thing is monarchs need milkweed. If they don't have milkweed, there will be no more monarchs. So forget the like and love. Monarchs have to have milkweed in order to reproduce, period. So that's my opportunity to show people. And they get so excited, especially when they learn that about when the monarch female is ready to lay eggs, what does she do? She flies around our yard looking for the right plant, and she lands on each one until she tastes with her feet what is a milkweed, and then she'll lay her eggs. That's just magic.
0: And will we'll crawl across 10 or 15 other plants not tasting that. Right. And compl- and, and so they're, oh. not, they don't, they're not food to her
1: exactly right, she'll right. land fly to something else land fly to something else right. land fly to something else until she finds that milkweed right.
0: and so most of the of the trees well, all of the native trees are host to something
1: i know that right. is so amazing and right. we can thank Doug tallamy for bringing this to like the civilians i mean what a game changer that was
0: the the book um, bringing nature home
1: that started it
0: is the is the book that started it Right. Um, and made that connection for civilians like myself right um, you know and my first interest was in was in birds yeah and learning from that book right that birds that are feeding young birds new hatchlings will feed them not seeds no. but bugs right and you um, Unless we have native trees, we don't have bugs Nope. for the birds.
1: Bugs are the baby food. That's exactly Unless you're a finch, I think that's one of the only exceptions. Finches can feed their baby seeds, but that's uh, well, about it.
0: I just learned something again <laughs> from you there. Uh, I wondered about that because I, I see the goldfinch feeding all the time on, on uh, the cone flowers and other yeah. flowers in our yard. Uh, and they're wonderful to observe. But um, so anyway... If you, um, anyway, you're observing what you see in your yard right? and learning about it.
1: And what you said about birds, so birds got you started, Mm -hmm. butterflies got me started. It doesn't matter where you start, Um, but those are the two, honestly, those might be the two best. I have a friend who doesn't really care about nature, never really goes outside. And she admitted to me, she only cares about pretty nature. So I said, okay, what's pretty to you? And she said, butterflies and hummingbirds. Well, that's awesome. She's halfway there. (laughs) If she just does something to help the butterflies or the hummingbirds, not even both, she's going to be helping everyone. Yes, of course, in the back of my mind, I think gateway to conservation. You know, I'm very teleological about this because I want you to keep learning and snowballing and just be this, you know, conservation Advocate, but it's okay if she just does one thing, then she's way ahead of the game.
0: You're, um, you, you used the term earlier about was it, green blindness or, or plant, plant blindness? blindness. Yeah. Um, and I, I've observed that a great deal. Um, the, but the also, there's a flip side to that. Is if you once you become aware of what you're seeing in the green world, yeah, um, you become aware of the problems that oh
1: are, my gosh. are out
0: there that other people don't that other people don't see. Am I right?
1: When when we took our daughter when she was little to the Mossy Ridge Trail at Warner Park, we would we would we'd be on some ridge top that she called the Magic Place. Can we go to the Magic Place? And then, oh my gosh! Years later, I realized, why was that place green 365 days a year, because of the winter, periwinkle. It was the vinca winter minor. Creeper, yeah, there was yeah, winter creeper, the euonymus, yeah, yeah. there was privet, there was the bush honeysuckle. So, yeah, yeah. When you, sometimes you you know so much that it's it's really disheartening.
0: I took a guy whose name I will not mention, who was a candidate for mayor, <laughs> some 20, 25 years ago on a hike in Warner Park uh, just for the purpose of showing him what was there that shouldn't be there and then took him on a ride around our neighborhood
1: yeah
0: to show him the same plants right. you know what what is bush honey bush honeysuckle what is privet Chinese privet and uh, this was a well-educated individual who was blind to what he was seeing. that was If it was green, it was good, as far as he was concerned. If it's
1: green, it's good. Right. Yeah, a lot of our greenways are sort of walled with that green. It's true and, enough, and isn't it's it? it's privet. And, and the privets are just starting to, to form their seeds, so it's already too late, too late to trim those back and prevent the next season. But wait, I feel like I've bad mouthed Mourner. This was a long time ago, and I want to say that last fall, we went back to the Magic Place, and they have removed all the exotic invasives.
0: This has been a subject on this program several times. Yeah. And um, this is true also of Radnor Lake. Right. Uh, and they've done such a great job of removing. And Warner Parks is well on the way to, to, to really making a great show. of, and, and the result of removing these things is going to be incredible displays of flowers in the springtime.
1: Oh, I can't wait to see the spring ephemerals. Yeah. yeah.
0: This is terrific. Okay, so this is kind of a springboard to this another topic here. Okay. And that has to do with lawns and lawn care.
1: Right. Okay. And I
0: was relating to you that when I moved into this house with Beth in 1983, I sort of had imprinted on my brain that you know, the best the best way is to have a uniform turf all around and all green and yeah. No weeds.
1: No weeds.
0: And um, over, over 40 years, I've abandoned that approach.
1: Oh, I can tell. Yeah. It's magnificent out
0: there. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what your thinking is.
1: Well, I have really strong opinions about lawn care. And it's hard to pull back when I talk to people. Okay, let's go back to the nice friend who wants to help butterflies and hummingbirds. The very first thing that she could do is to stop doing stuff. It's like first do no harm, like the Hippocratic Oath. If you can just stop poisoning your lawn with pesticides, with herbicides, with fungicides, with um, with especially petroleum-based fertilizers, but maybe any fertilizers. Can you please stop irrigating your turf every damn day on a timer, rain or shine? Um, Can you stop seeding? Can you stop mowing so close to the ground? Can you please stop with the leaf blowers? Leaf leaf blowers used to just be for leaves and now we need to give them a different name because they're just lawn blowers. They're a total disaster. Can you please stop with the mosquito spray? I don't care if it's natural. It's killing everything it touches. So just stop it. You're saving money. Um, you're saving time, you're saving the planet for all of us, and you're helping your pretty nature. You're helping all the butterflies and all the birds in your yard and all around you.
0: When, you know, I, I'm, I could tell you what I see when I see a yard that's uniform and all the same species and yeah. of fescue or
1: right. Bermuda.
0: When you see that, what do you see?
1: I see an ecological, ah, I can't say ecological desert because deserts are functioning ecosystems. I see an ecological nightmare so yeah so i wasn't even talking about what plants are in the yard i was just talking about how you take care of what plants are there right right now but yes if you're going for that green golf course look that's an exotic monoculture i flipped out when i found out that even kentucky bluegrass is from asia all of these successful turf grasses are from a different continent that's insane for the
0: for the same reasons we were talking about earlier
1: for the same reasons because yeah i only mentioned milkweed just because that's the poster child for for this kind of host plant uh, and animal specialization but yeah everything hosts something right.
0: but those but those species that are not native to North America right don't
1: they don't function like that here. That's right.
0: They're, they they are just they might as well be a concrete post.
1: Sometimes yes. Sometimes yeah. they might feed one or two things and that would be awesome, but right. for the most part, these things that were brought in from another place will function fine where they where they evolved with the creatures there, but not here.
0: Right. So what do people do that want to transition from uh, that concept of of the the uniform turf grass lawn. Right. And they want to start to make a contribution to the overall environment and to the ecosystem around them.
1: How do they start? How do they start? Well, they need to start by stopping all those practices that I mentioned, which is really hard to do because we're supposed to do that. We're frightened into doing that. I get postcards every day about how I need to kill the pests in my yard. It's not safe to go in my own yard. So, So first just stop it stop doing the bad stuff save money save the rest of us but then the possibilities are endless it just depends on your style on how much money you have how much time you have how much knowledge you want to have I mean the easiest thing to do I think is again back to Doug Tallamy Um, he's got this really great let's get started page with 10 items how to get started I would personally order them differently and start with number one, with get rid of the pesticides and your herbicides. His his is like way down seven or eight, I would put it number one. But one of his is to reduce the area of lawn, all you have to do is leave the leaves. So in the fall, when those leaves fall from your trees, just scooch them under the drip line of each tree, ideally the tree it came from, but if you can cover the drip line Boom, you've reduced the area of lawn right there. Mm-hmm.
0: What's what's the function of those leaves that you're letting be?
1: Oh. Okay, well, I know you know the answer, right. but uh, what is it? Like <laughs> 90% of all of our butterfly and moth species overwinter as in some in some life stage. These are either as an egg, as a caterpillar with their little antifreeze, or as a chrysalis. Sometimes even as an adult. And where are they? Most of them are in our leaf litter, which again is a weird term. You know, for beginners, leaf litter isn't litter a bad thing. So. What I mean is the fallen leaves that need to stay there on the ground. So that's where critters are that want to survive the winter, that want to emerge again in spring. And they can't do that if we blow them to death or put them in a bag or run over them with a lawnmower and quote, mulch them, right? They're dead. It's also conserving moisture, and it's helping the ground be less compressed. It's helping the tree. It's fertilizing the tree. All those little fungi and bacteria can do their things all year long just because you left the leaves.
0: And that that applies sort of broadly across the whole spectrum of leaves. I mean, it's oak or...
1: well, that's... okay. Okay. Yes, that's a good point. I... Not all leaves are created equal. If you have a giant sycamore in your front yard, oh my gosh, you know, bless your heart, you're going to need some help because those leaves are the size of dinner plates sure. and it takes them forever to, to break Deacon down. Has, Same right. with, you know, a Southern Magnolia, those right. gi- gigantic, they're almost right. like plastic. So not all leaves are created equal. Personally, my favorite leaf is the hackberry because there's so many and they just nestle right down in the grass. You don't even have to gather them. They're f- just leave them where they are. So yeah, not all leaves are created equal, but most will be fine.
0: You know, in in Nashville, yes. we have rules and regulations about what people can do with their lawns and their yards.
1: Yeah, you're familiar. Yeah, the metro ordinances and right. such. Yes. Right.
0: Any thoughts about about that? Um, not not that you need to critique no. the ordinances. Um, I would, but
1: I any any ways
0: it. any ways around that?
1: Now wait, as far as I know, isn't it like 12 inch, anything over 12 inches is considered weeds and must be removed?
0: So, something you know, I haven't but read the law recently. But.
1: I, I, I kind of think that's that's what it is. But you can get around that with with what they call cues for care. You know, with your hardscaping, or if you mow around this bed with your like you and your beautiful big bluegrass and your little bluegrass, like it's obvious it's in a planned and planted bed. Metro's not going to come knocking on your door. Right. But if it's just growing wild and crazy, then yeah, it's going to be a problem. Right. So it just takes a little bit of care
0: people need to become knowledgeable about what they see in their yards. I mean, what's what's in their yards?
1: I'd love that. I'd love that. I need maybe hire me as a consultant. I'll come out and tell you what's <laughs> it. That's what I found out because when I wanted to reduce my lawn, I had to figure out what was there. Sure. And of course, I'm on my hands and knees combing through and discovering all these things I didn't know were there. Like like what we saw in your yard, these sedges. These amazing native sedges that are in everybody's yard, unless they've had sod put down or, or you know, done a lot of things to their yard. Which, uh, but 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 if it's just an old kind of unkempt yard, you've got a huge mosaic of stuff out there.
0: It's it's in the seed bank in the soil.
1: It's there. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. And will come up if left to their own devices.
1: Yeah, Yeah. but a lot of it's even like, okay, say you have a lawn care service and you have the pre-emergent herbicide and the post-emergent herbicide. So herbicides are killing everything that's not a monocot, right? It's killing everything that's not a monocot. Right, yeah, like grasses and sedges and corn, but we're not talking about corn. But my point is that even if you've got these herbicides, Go look. I bet you've got the native sedges nestled in there with all that dumb exotic turf grass. So just pull up the turf grass or pull up the dumb monkey grass or the liriope or the dwarf mondo grass. And that's what's left. These beautiful cascades of native sedge. Where
0: do you go uh, for information when you're trying to learn yourself about what you see?
1: Well, if it's in bloom and it's not a tree, I used to start always with the field guide from the Tennessee Native Plant Society, Wildflowers of Tennessee. Can't beat that, it's got a color key, it's awesome. Um, Gosh, good question, if it's it's a tree, well, I have so many field guides at home. But nowadays I do, since I kind of know more than I used to, I always have my phone with me and I've got iNaturalist installed. Got you.
0: Got you. You think that works good?
1: That works great for me because I'm not just curious about, hey, what's this thing? I also want to record this observation and put it in iNaturalist so that if anybody is studying whatever they want to study and my thing happens to help them, they can use my observation. So it's an easy way to be part of citizen science. And I get what I need because I get an ID. And I get confirmation for that ID if someone agrees with me.
0: I got you. Now you were talking about the hackberry tree.
1: Yeah.
0: And I know you've got a special interest in the hackberry. You you're involved in, in doing some writing about the hackberry.
1: I do love the hackberry. Right.
0: You know, I did hear this, this sort of folk folklore about the hackberry and how it got into the South.
1: Okay. That
0: it was Yankee soldiers that brought the Hackberry in on their boots from the north. Have you heard that?
1: I have heard that. And it's, <laughs> it's a cute story. I don't know how, how true it is. But I'll take any hackberry story that doesn't involve just cutting them all down. Seems,
0: <laughs> seems like the hackberries have been here for
1: well, and there's a several southern, thousand
0: more years than yeah, that. Yeah, right?
1: there's a southern hackberry and there's a northern hackberry. Oh, I didn't realize that. Right, so the okay. northern hackberry is, is Occidentalis and the southern hackberry is Levigata. Those are the two species of the genus. Okay. which is celtus or Celtis, depending on how you pronounce that first letter c and then we've got a dwarf hackberry which is a third species and that happens in our cedar glades and okay. i never first i thought well it's just dwarf because you know who can grow in a cedar glade you're right. you're shimmying out but some it's, little crack. it's a genetically different plant wow interesting so we've got three different species and because of where we are on the uh, in the country uh, it was Dr. Crawl at Vanderbilt University. I, someone told me that he once called uh, Middle Tennessee um, a swarm of hackberries because this is where the species overlap. We've got it all. We've got the northern. We've got the southern. Oh, really? okay. And they, they, uh, you know, they mix and mingle in their genetic material. So we've got all these hybrids that just happened. We're a swarm of hackberries.
0: And what is the what is the place in the in the ecosystem that the hackberry holds?
1: Well, it's just a good old native shade tree. It, according to the Tallamy chart, to our um, our zip code, it can host 49 different butterfly and moth species. Oh, and there's that word host again. What does that mean? That means that 49 different species of butterflies and moths can run around and look for hackberries and when they find it, they will lay their eggs on hackberries. And, and, the and hack- eat the leaves. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, when the yeah. eggs hatch, the caterpillars will stay there and eat and eat and eat. On time to pupate, so their entire life they just eat some. Now, have you ever seen a caterpillar make a big mess? (laughs) There's not much mess there. Well,
0: they sometimes drop on cars and make.
1: No, now, if you're Mm -hmm. talking about mess dropping on cars, it's not the caterpillars that are doing it. I can tell you what that mess is. Tell me what that is. Oh, wait, I'm not done with the butterflies. Okay, Okay, so some of our most beautiful local butterflies happen only on Hackberry, like the Hackberry Emperor and the Tawny Emperor, but there are other ones too. There's the question mark, the red spotted purple, there's the Eastern comma. Oh, gosh, there's so many more. Oh, the American snout, only Hackberries. Um, these are types of these
0: butterflies. These are types and moths. of
1: color. No, not even moths. Okay. Not even moths. People hate moths because moths eat your clothes. That's what you think, right? right? No, these are charismatic butterflies that if you see flying around your garden, you think, oh, isn't that pretty? That's pretty nature. Well, to protect that pretty nature, stop cutting down the hackberry trees. No, the mess comes from other creatures, I'm sorry to say. Um, the mess that makes people hate hackberries yes. is. The hackberry woolly aphid, which was that's accidentally right. imported from China right. not too long ago, it was like in the early 90s. But the hackberry woolly aphids specialized in Chinese hackberries. Now Chinese hackberries in China make awesome bonsai trees, by the way. So maybe that's how they were brought over. I don't, but I think there are a lot of uh, Chinese hackberries in California somehow these pests now these are pests these are agricultural mm-hmm. pests these little aphids little fuzzy woolly aphids that look like they're wearing little little fluffs of wax they're the ones who suck the hackberry leaves and then pardon me but when they poo they poo out the honeydew that sweet stuff that the ants love to harvest and the honeydew's not even the problem the problem is when the honeydew drops on stuff it makes that black sooty mold and that's what people hate yeah.
0: If you ever get that on your on your car if it was in a parking lot where there's a hackberry tree it can be it can be difficult to to get off
1: your well car. right plant right place exactly. we, nobody wants a hackberry tree over a driveway a parking lot or your house right yeah
0: so tell us more
1: um well you know i hate to say it again but another mess people hate about the hackberry tree comes from the berries which are looking pretty good this year we've had some lean years lately but Um, if a hackberry is healthy and it's having an on year it can have a lot of berries Um, and if you find some that look kind of garnet colored and look kind of fat and they're within reach take some down and give it a nibble because they can be delicious yeah but the birds love them and it's not just that the birds love them oh we're back to the love and like again the birds need them in the winter time, if you are a hungry cedar waxwing or a hungry American robin, or, you know, they, they stay here all winter. What is there to eat? Well, I mean, fly through green hills. What is there to eat? Are there maybe some berries left on your beautiful deciduous holly, which is a native? Great, but who else plants that? Not everybody. They've got Nandinas. Well, guess what? Nandinas with those gorgeous red berries, as we know, are full of hydrocyanic acid and can kill birds or at least make them ill. What do they see? So they see hackberries. They see hackberries. Hackberries are awesome nutrition for any kind of migrating bird, our winter birds. Um, that, I think, and the Eastern Red Cedar with the little blueberries, those are the two native trees that keep our winter birds alive.
0: So very cool, Yeah. very cool. So what are you seeing on the, on the sidewalk as you walk around these days?
1: Well, as I said, I walk every day, and I don't think I ever come home empty-handed. I can't not take something home. Lately, I've been finding dead cicadas, and that's not sad. It's just because that cicada has lived out its full life, but um, luckily, I'm still hearing a lot of cicadas from dawn to dusk. That's just one of my favorite summer sounds. We have so many different species. Each species has its own song. They're amazing. Um, so I'm finding dead cicadas. I'm finding pokeberries, because now, I should say my sidewalks don't always take me by manicured lawns. My sidewalks take me by um, interstate bridges. I'll just I'll shortcut through trash alleys. This is where I'm finding the most biodiversity. Usually, are the places that nobody takes care of. Um, I I will go through vacant lots. But then again, more and more people, okay, here's some cause for hope too, are doing, um, hell strip gardening. So the hell strip is that little strip of turf. It's actually a Metro right of way between a street and And a sidewalk. sidewalk. So it's usually just grass and the homeowner's responsible for keeping it mown. But sometimes people are putting stuff there and there are some magnificent, there's some heavenly hell strips in the neighborhood, things even with people food. So, um, I don't,
0: um, sometimes apple trees and
1: apple trees, fig trees. There's Hmm. this wonderful one nearby that has an herb curb Ah. and the owner has planted culinary herbs and she lets them flower. So she's not only attracting the pollinators that come to the flower, or sometimes like she's got carrot family stuff. She's got fennel, dill. Well, who eats fennel and dill? Black swallowtail caterpillars. will use those non-native plants in the carrot family to lay eggs on, the little caterpillars are munching, so there's that, but she, but she invites people to come and take what they like. If you need, oh, I need a little bit of oregano for dinner, come and take it, it's just so friendly to everyone.
0: And this time of the year, we're seeing um, acorns and uh, walnuts and uh, all the fruits of these, all the various hardwoods that we have around Tennessee.
1: Right, so for the people who will let a walnut stay in their yard, <laughs> it's great they just fall anybody can have them the squirrels have have them um, I've sometimes I'm seen stealing walnuts from the curb and invited to come back with a trash can and I will have <laughs> a trash bag so I'll come and, and leave them a my little Santa sack full of black walnuts because I want them um, there's not too many hickories in our neighborhood but I'm finding some bitternut hickories I'm, I'm waiting for someone to to show me where a shag bark is that's what I really am after um, the magnolia cones are falling right now from the southern magnolia, and those are full of those red seeds that the squirrels pull out. Um, if you find one that still has red seas, seeds, I, um, I would advise you to pull them out yourself very slowly because it's super fun to do. They they pull them out and there's like this little elastic filament that just stretches and stretches and stretches, and you do it one by one. And I joke that it's like a contemplative exercise, but it really is, it's so fun. And each one of those will grow a magnolia tree. It's just amazing.
0: A little latex sort of thing going on. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's like latex. Interesting. Um, So that's happening, and then, um, oh, the green ashes, they're dropping their keys everywhere. I don't have a lot of white ash but there are green ashes everywhere sorry when i say keys i mean samaras the fruit it's like a we usually think of as helicopters, helicopters yeah, yeah, yeah
0: helicopter seeds yeah yeah um, and pawpaws and uh, persimmons
1: right we need more of those everybody plant pawpaws and persimmons um, i noticed your beautiful pawpaw patch in the backyard and i have seen in my neighborhood Two other people have pawpaws that I just recently noticed. I mean, they have very distinctive leaves. Um, I grow pawpaws, but there really needs to be more. It is my dream to have pawpaws and persimmons in our little pocket parks, because that will feed people and animals with good native fruit.
0: You know, um Elmington Park is a park near us, yeah. Um, and I think that they have actually planted some persimmons, but they're not the native persimmon. Oh they're,
1: no, I have to go look.
0: They're um,
1: the Japanese.
0: Well, they're the they're the type that grow the great big persimmon fruit. Right. Um,
1: and they're that that glossy sort of peach color, right. that little shiny.
0: Right. Uh, which is not a native. No. Um, Good to eat. They're fun, you know. Beautiful fruit, yeah, in and, and a beautiful tree. Not a bad tree by any right. means. Um, I'll never forget though the f- learning about the persimmons when I moved from Ohio to Tennessee. Uh, we had a, a persimmon tree in a little city park that I managed in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Um, and that it was dropping the balls, you know, the little the little balls, you know, just a little bit bigger than a than a marble. Right. Um, and um, it, was, it was still early in the fall and oh, no. had not not uh, had the frost yet. And, of course, the maintenance guys knew I was a,
1: a greenhorn. Oh, no. And
0: yep. you need to taste those, Mr. Fraley. That so, is so
1: mean. Yeah.
0: And, of course, they were just as bitter and, and awful tasting as wow. you could imagine. Well,
1: and you kept tasting it for hours, I'm right? sure. It's so astringent.
0: But then after the first frost, it was a completely different story how, how wonderful those things are
1: oh they're they're so good just out of hand or in baked goods but now the first frost thing might have been true in gatlinburg but it's not true here they're ripe already
0: oh really yeah
1: so you you, if it's a smudgy little pudgy pillow it's ready if you can stick your finger in it and it keeps the indentation it's ready just it's just yeah
0: it has to ripen
1: that might have been true up north or like at the higher elevations but it's not true here well interesting yeah
0: well i always learn something are you involved in in the formal environmental education uh, network around Tennessee
1: not really no, no.
0: other you, you you certainly were with with learn with with uh, taking the course at oh the naturals at program. the naturals program yeah
1: and the naturals program does require um, volunteer work in order to keep your certification right. um, so I do volunteer I would I do it anyway and and I volunteer at schools and whatnot right.
0: But there is an environmental ed uh, network around Tennessee for science teachers in high schools and elementary schools. I'm not really
1: plugged into that at all. I'd like to find out more about it.
0: You are involved, though, uh, at the university school in some way, aren't you?
1: Right. I have a backyard full of passion vine right now, our Tennessee state wildflower, the purple passion vine, and I just... That was my gateway to conservation. That was my, it wasn't the monarch and the milkweed, it was the gulf Fritillary butterfly and the passion vine. That was my aha moment. And I wanted to bring that to the school so that K through 12 students would have that opportunity and not wait till they're an old lady before they see the entire butterfly life cycle and understand about the plant and animal interaction. Um, It's not like ordering butterflies from a kit and having eggs arrive and they eat from a little, you know, beaker with with sugar water. This is a plant-animal interaction in real time. So I helped the kids put a native plant garden at school, and we have a whole bed dedicated to the gulf fritillary butterfly. We have a whole bed for the monarch and a whole bed for the black swallowtail too, because that way we've got the host plants, there's that term again, we've got the caterpillar host plants, and hopefully the students can see the whole life cycles in action. Well, okay, but not every student can go to the green roof and see all this stuff every day. So, this year I brought the plant to a classroom. I have a friend who teaches science, and she said, oh my gosh, yes, I want your butterflies. And I brought in a whole bunch of the plant and the kids could see the eggs and each instar of the caterpillars, the hatchling, which is almost too small to see, and then they get bigger and bigger. They can see them molt out of their exoskeletons. They can see the chrysalises form and hopefully see the butterflies eclose and then they just open up a window and let it fly away. And why is that okay? Because that is a native butterfly and as soon as that butterfly flies out the window, it's gonna have friends right there on the green roof. There's more up there and there's tons of its host plant up there. So that is just the best thing in the world for me. It made me so happy. I'm so happy to get these updates from the science teacher about the kids seeing these different stages and understanding about the plant and animal specialization.
0: So we need to do more of that in our schools.
1: Yes, please.
0: Tell Tell us.
1: Well, I don't know. Another science teacher came to me in the classroom and said, you know, when I was going in school, going through school, 99% of my studies were from a textbook. We never had any field book. We never went outside. So we just need to get outside. We need to plant native plant gardens and observe. Not just garden gardens, not just food gardens, which are awesome, but native plant gardens, too. Right.
0: You know, when when I was growing up, I had the opportunity to to do a nature study type thing in the Cincinnati park system. Mm. And it was fine. But it was, in retrospect, sort of memorization kind of work, which they tried to make fun. You know, flashcards of what tree is this?
1: Oh, IDs. Right? So you're identifying so, things. And,
0: you know, and it has paid off dividends yeah. over the years. Okay, I can know that's an oak, I know that's a, you know, a maple, and I know that's a sycamore, you know, the right. basic trees. But the connection between. Why that tree is an important thing in the ecosystem right. versus the honeysuckle bush that's growing in the, in the same yeah. park. Um, we were never...
1: No, no. It and never
0: was opened up to us.
1: No, and even now, I really try. If I'm leading a hike, I try to not name things right away. Because so often, when you ID something, that's the end. Oh, that's the name. Okay, next... Like that's the only goal is to name something. That's the beginning. It should be the beginning because you want to know how that fits in with the community. Right. But, um, but it is a beginning. It, it is something's a beginning. important to do. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Cause if you know the name, you can look it up. Right. Yeah. And talk to people about it. Right. Yeah.
0: We, we mentioned Doug Tallamy in his book. Are there other books that you are looking at that are influencing you these days?
1: Gosh, no, no, no. And honestly, I'm not reading the books. Um, I tell you, the, the, the National Wildlife Federation has taken his research, has taken Ptolemy's research, and made it so easy to access. They've got their native plant finder. So if there's ever a plant you're curious about, uh, how does it function? You can look it up, and it'll tell you exactly at least how many butterfly and moth species that's, again, that's only the beginning now. That's enough. That's enough. If you're helping those, that's enough. But now we're into specialist bees. How many specialist bees? is that? What's a specialist bee? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a bee right. who has very specialized needs. It can only feed their young with certain things. I mean, there's it just it explodes how many ways a plant can function in an ecosystem. Right.
0: So the National Wildlife Federation. Yeah. yeah. And they have a little certification program, don't they? For, oh, they do. For and backyard wildlife yes. plots. That's that a great
1: place to start. Yeah. yeah with yeah. a little survey and you can adapt it to, I adapted it to preschool and the preschoolers were walking around with their little clipboards, seeing what, what they had on the property and what they needed to have. Right.
0: that That's a great exercise. It's wonderful. Yeah. And and that that information is readily available online if you just search for National. They make it very wildlife easy. Federation.
1: Yeah, NWF, yeah. right? They make it so easy. Yeah,
0: and they even have little signs that you can put in your. Great York signs. And, yeah. Yep. Um, I guess as part of the strategy for warding off the the code uh, the code administration for violations of the bunch grass good. thing is a good sign. Yes. This is a wildlife plot
1: Literally a good sign. Yes. <laughs>
0: So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today on the Mark Furley podcast. It's been a joy to speak with you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, uh, and I wish you the best as you move forward in all your endeavors. Thank you. All right. Thank you.